Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for this church body and for just the, the many things that we have going on at, at any given time, Lord. You've blessed us with uh, so many gifted people that have so many great uh, ideas inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord. And so I would pray for each of these ministries that uh, uh, we're, we're hoping to uh, see start up. I would pray, Lord, for uh, this marriage ministry, this marriage Bible study that's going to be going on up at the Annex, Lord, that's led by the Stevenses. Uh, Lord, I would pray for our Young Marrieds Fellowship, that we would find good fellowship there. I would pray for these mission trips that are coming up, Lord. I want to lift up to you as well uh, this encounter presentation with, with YWAM. Each one of those things can be uh, an important moment in the life of a believer in this church. And so we would pray uh, that your spirit even now would be speaking to people the things that they should be involved in, uh, the things that, that might be a blessing uh, to them and to their families and to their loved ones and their friends. Uh, Father, also I want to pray, uh, Lord, just for our church as a whole and some of the ministries we're involved in, Lord, I think specifically this morning of, of Harriman Chapel out there, Lord, as they're uh, looking for a new pastor and uh, I guess technically I'm looking for a new pastor for them, that you would give myself and the elders uh, some wisdom, that we would have just the right person for that opportunity out there that would be willing to serve and to love uh, the people at that Harriman community out there. Lord, I would pray also uh, for um, our video ministry and the, the work that they do in making sure that we have slides for our songs and uh, announcement slides and all of that stuff being done, Lord. And I thank you for uh, Doug and his leadership over that and the other ones that are involved in that. Father, I pray also for other churches in town. I realize that uh, all over the city of Cheyenne, you've gathered believers together today for the purpose of, of glorifying you, and they are there to, to worship you and to hear from your word, Lord. This morning, I would pray, pray for uh, Family Harvest Church, Lord, that uh, they would be a church that would uh, grow in their knowledge and understanding of your son, Jesus Christ, that through the teaching of the word there, that the people would comprehend more and more just how much it is that you love them. Father, that you would encourage them, that you would uh, continually give them good and godly leadership and good and godly wisdom. Father, that you would bless them as a church going forward. Lord, we want to pray as well for the service that we have here. Father, as I open up um, Mark chapter 9 today, I pray that you would be revealing to each one of us the things that you have set aside for us individually in your word, that the teaching is there, the teaching is um, maybe things we've heard before, maybe things that might be obvious to some. Uh, but you have more to say than that, that your spirit wants to speak into each of our lives, that the word would have an impact, that we would be able to look at your word, Lord, as a mirror and, and see a reflection of ourselves and recognize the who we are in comparison to your word. Uh, Father, we would ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, raise your hands if you need a Bible this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bible or if you have it on your phone or iPad or whatever else you have going on there, uh, carved into stone. I don't know what everybody's got, but uh, open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, and uh, we'll get going here. I want to point out uh, just a, a real quick thing that uh, you guys might relate to this, maybe you won't, but uh, I have often told people on my staff that there is nothing more frustrating on the planet Earth than very clearly explaining yourself and nobody understanding you. I don't know if anybody's ever had that feeling, but for me, that is, it's, it's exhausting. There have been times where I feel like I've explained myself not only clearly, but repeatedly. And so then I try a new tactic. I try loudly, like maybe they just couldn't hear me. Maybe if I shouted at them, they'll get it. Um, but uh, as, as I've gone through that over the years, I found that that's kind of the most frustrating thing that could potentially happen to you is that you feel like you're communicating clearly and yet somehow it's not being understood. The other thing that can happen is if you have something very important to communicate and in the midst of that communication, all of a sudden something happens and now there's this huge distraction. There's these things that happen. You have to respond to them and all that stuff just has this tendency uh, to, to change the attention of people that are supposed to be learning this, this great thing or whatever it might be. And that's what we're going to see today with Jesus. Jesus has one message he's trying to hammer home to his disciples. At the end of chapter uh, 8 there, we saw it briefly with Aaron, and we're going to see it kind of repeatedly here in the first half of chapter 9 today. He has one thing he wants his disciples to understand, and that is that he is going to go to Jerusalem 
He's going to suffer and die. And then three days later, he's going to raise from the dead. But you will not believe how difficult it's going to be to get the disciples to understand this. At the end of uh, chapter 8, you may have noticed this last week as Aaron was uh, teaching on it. But in verse 31, he tells them this. He said, he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. It's a pretty simple concept. It's scary, but he's saying, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And the response of his wonderful disciples, Peter rebuked Jesus. No, you're not. I'm not going to allow it. To which Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan. And then we'll see here as we go through these, these two kind of powerful events in the ministry of Jesus, that through those things, he's actually not trying to get us to focus on the events, but we're going to see him repeat this idea kind of throughout, whether it's in verse 1 or verse 9 or verse 31, over and over and over again. He's going to try to get them to understand he's got to go to, to Jerusalem to die. And then he will be raised again three days later. That's all he wants them to understand. Not to give away the end of the story, but I'm going to give away the end of the story. (laughs) Jesus goes through all of that, and at the very end, in verse 32, his disciples, after he's going to, we're actually going to find, I think, five times in these verses here where Jesus is referring to this concept. Even though there's cool things going on, this is what his theme is. This is what he's trying to get to them. And in verse 32, it says, they did not understand this statement. How frustrating is that? I've, it's not that hard. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. But three days later, I'm going to resurrect from the dead. Understanding what it said is not that hard. But having not really ever seen anybody resurrected from the dead, that's hard to understand, right? So you can understand from that perspective that the concept is difficult for them to grasp. But what Jesus is saying is really not all that complicated. And it's going to be more complicated by some of the events that are going to happen to him. And so we'll pick it up here uh, in chapter 9. And and we're going to see him first the transfiguration of Jesus, which is a powerful event in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then second, we're going to see him uh, casting out a demon. And so I want you to understand those are powerful moments, but those moments are becoming somewhat of a distraction to the ministry that Jesus is actually trying to do. So what we want to do is we want to properly look at those things and understand the transfiguration and understand this uh, casting out of the demon. We want to do those things, but we don't want to make that same mistake and let those things distract us from the ministry that Jesus actually has. And ultimately that ministry is that he would die on a cross paying the price for our sins and then resurrect from the dead showing that he has the power over death. That's what we want to see in this. So let's not get too distracted by the really cool things that are about to happen, right? Because that can be a little bit frustrating. So in verse 1, actually, uh, if I was uh, the guy that was assigning chapters and references to this Bible, verse 1 would actually be attached to chapter 8, and then verse 1 of chapter 9 would actually be verse 2. But um, I'm not going to argue that point because... you know, I would have had to have been alive thousands of years ago to make that happen, and so I wasn't. So, you know, you show up late to the party and look what happens. In verse 1, I think a continuation of the thought that Jesus has already made at the end of chapter 8, and Jesus was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now, this is an interesting statement. Jesus is saying there are people in our midst. He's talking to his disciples as well as a crowd of people that has gathered together. And he's telling them specifically, some of you will not die before my kingdom is seen in power. Some of you won't die. So you can try to figure out what that means, but there's become a kind of two basic interpretations of what that means. Basic interpretation number one, and I believe it's the reason that the, the man who put 
the chapters in the Bible and the verse references here has laid this out in such a way that chapter 9 verse 1 starts the transfiguration. That's because his interpretation is that at the transfiguration, these three men are actually going to see the kingdom of God in power, that they're going to see exactly what Jesus was proclaiming. And so he's looking at this saying that that was intended to be a transition into the transfiguration. So that's why he would put it there. And then the other interpretation that I would say uh, I believe is a little bit more accurate is that the power of Jesus' kingdom come is most obvious in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That when he's resurrected from the dead, that was this obvious, powerful moment of his kingdom coming. And there are going to be a number of people, not just these three, but a number of people in that crowd who after the resurrection are going to go, Oh, now I get it. That's the power of the kingdom of God. He overcame death, that resurrection there. So, uh, and, and then here comes the second reason why I believe that should have been tacked on to chapter 8. Verse 2 starts with six days later. So that's just the last phrase in this conversation he was having six days ago. But let's remember what started that conversation Jesus was talking about I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Peter says, uh-uh. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. There's some stuff coming you're not going to believe. And then he goes on, and we have this moment of transfiguration, which is a strange word. Verse 2 says this, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white so as no launderer on earth can whiten them elijah appeared to them along with moses and they were talking with jesus peter said to jesus rabbi it's good for us to be here let us make three tabernacles one for you one for moses and one for elijah and now peter is 0 for 2 for he did know, not know what to answer. Just, just by the way, if you don't know what to answer, don't answer. He did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now, this in and of itself is a pretty powerful moment. Jesus takes with him three disciples. Some call them uh, the three disciples that Jesus loved. Some people call them the remedial class, the ones that weren't getting it, that he had to spend more time with, kept after class to explain things to. Uh, but for whatever reason, these three, Peter, James, and John, go up on the mountain with Jesus. And we find from the other gospel accounts that while they were there, uh, they were just praying. That's what they were supposed to be doing. So Jesus brings them away to pray, much like he's going to do in the Garden of Gethsemane later. He's going to bring them all together to pray, these three guys and himself. They're praying, and as is their habit, the disciples during the prayer are going to fall asleep and almost miss the coolest thing ever. So he brings them apart for the purpose of prayer, and in that time, they fall asleep while they're sleeping Jesus changes, transfigures, or looking more at a Greek use of the word here, he morphs into something else. has nothing to do with Power Rangers, no matter how mighty they might think they are. But there is this change of Jesus. Uh, what's happening is you're seeing the glorified Jesus Christ, much like he will be seen in heaven. And with him now, the glorified Jesus Christ who's changed in such a way, it says that he's radiating so much that his clothes are so white, so bright, that there's no bleach out there that can do it. There's no launderer that can clean him that much. And, and I don't know how else they were supposed to explain this. Imagine living at a time before electric lights, before movie screens, when all you really kind of know is if something's bright, it's going to be like a candle. Well, that's bright. And now Jesus is like beyond anything they've ever seen. They're trying to explain it. Like imagine if you were to completely bleach everything you have, that's not white enough. 
It's the glory of God showing through Jesus Christ here in this moment. But standing with Jesus alongside him are two Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah. These are actually pretty powerful ideas here. Uh, It's cool that it's Moses and Elijah. Moses, you might recall, Moses represents the law, the Old Testament law. Elijah, a representation of the prophets. But you also kind of have stirred into this pot this idea that both of them kind of had mysterious ends to their life. Like they just kind of had this kind of mysterious thing that it was almost like they were no more. It's just kind of a weird thing where it doesn't go into great detail about their particular death. And so it's kind of left to this understanding that now they're with God in heaven. And yet here are these two towering figures of the Old Testament meeting with Jesus. At about that time, Peter wakes up. Hey, who turned on the lights? I can barely sleep over here. Whoa. And there's Jesus glowing, having a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Now, uh, I assume the way that Peter knows this is Moses and Elijah is that he heard a little bit of the conversation and Jesus said, Sup, Moses? Sup, Elijah? Or something like that, like, you know, somehow that's how he knows who they are, because I'm assuming he hasn't seen photographs of the guys. But in some way, we'll find that Peter actually knows that's who this is. Maybe it was some cooler, like, direct revelation from God, where he's like, hey, just so you know, Peter, that's Moses and that's Elijah. But either way, he wakes up, the light's blinding, he's kind of groggy because he's been sleeping, probably sleeping on the ground at this point, because they're just up on a mountain somewhere. And he sees all this kind of craziness going on. Jesus is being glorified in his midst. And he looks at all of this. And his first response, of course, is fear, but not the kind of fear where he wants to go beat up Moses and Elijah. Like, hey, who are these two guys surrounding my Savior? I'm going to go take care of business. It's not that kind of fear. Like, he's afraid that there's danger. But I think it's more of a wow fear. Like just looking at the circumstances, the situation, seeing Jesus glowing like that, like there's a fear there, but it's not like a fear for his life, but it's just this moment of something so powerful and amazing being done by God that he's never experienced before, and it strikes him with terror. And in the moment, having no idea what he's supposed to say, he says, let's build some tabernacles. Seriously? (laughs) He wants to build a shrine for Moses and build a shrine for Elijah and build a shrine for Jesus. What in his Old Testament teaching made him think building shrines to other people besides God was a good idea? Well, in the moment of fear, in the moment of terror, in the moment of absence of thought, he speaks out. Well, if that's not embarrassing enough, look who corrects him. Can you imagine? Everything's glowing, and then all of a sudden, the shadow comes over you. Look at that. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud, probably sounded much like James Earl Jones. (laughs) This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You thought he was scared before? Imagine the fear in this moment. And then even cooler, just to make the point more obvious, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them, anyone except Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. And Moses, representing the law, and Elijah, representing the prophets, fade away. This is my son. Listen to him. And it's this crazy moment where God is giving honor and glory to his own son, Jesus Christ, and giving clarity to Peter and to James and to John that all of your preconceived ideas, all that you thought you knew about the Old Testament law and prophets, I need you to set that aside because my son has come to explain them to you. Stop arguing with him. 
when he says he has to go and suffer and die. Stop questioning if his interpretation is accurate. Listen to him. What a powerful moment that must have been. Peter's going to address that, by the way, uh, later. Actually, I've skipped over this. This is actually kind of important. Um, Do you ever wonder what they were talking about? Like you read through this and it just says they were talking. Like what were they talking about? Well, we actually know what they were talking about. Luke, as he tells this story, it's just one quick verse, but it gives us the understanding of what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9. We have the transfiguration here. And in Luke chapter 9, I love hearing those pages turn. Verses 30 and 31, it says, Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, what had Jesus just told them he was going to do? He had just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised three days later. And then he has this meeting on the mountain of transfiguration where they're talking about him going to Jerusalem for his departure. So what's being taught here? What is Jesus expressing? Hey, Peter, if you didn't get it when I said it, maybe you'll believe it when Moses and Elijah tell you. I am going to Jerusalem to die. And then when God says, hey, he's my son, listen to him. Do you think Peter's starting to get the point right now? That maybe his job at this point as apostle is to listen and talk less. Like he's got a lot that he needs to gain, that he needs to learn here from Jesus. So that's what's going to happen. Peter will talk about this later in 2 Peter. He's going to bring this up, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says this in verse 16 and 17. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's trying to prove this point to the people he's writing to. Look, this isn't some cleverly devised scheme that we're bringing to you. This whole thing with Jesus, this isn't some scheme. We literally saw Jesus honored and glorified by his Father. We literally saw it when we were with him on the mountain. This mountain of transfiguration. For Peter, this is one of those moments where the light begins to come on for him. Or at least as he looks back at it, maybe, after the resurrection. He looks back at this moment and he realizes what God was doing in that moment was making clear that the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ should be obviously present there that should have been recognized it was him honoring and glorifying his son and that's how peter remembers it and it's because of that eyewitness account of him seeing the transfigured jesus christ that his ministry kind of continues on after that i like to joke about peter kind of being bumbling and dumb and stuff leading up to this only because i recognize it in myself like i see how easy it would be for me in my own pride to think, how cool am I? I'm one of the three that gets to hang out with Jesus. And as long as I'm cool, I might as well tell Jesus, you got your doctrine wrong, son, of God. (laughs) Wait, that doesn't make sense. Like, can't you just see yourself falling into that pride trap? Like, first, you're one of the 12. Now you're one of the three. And you've been called up to a secret meeting with Moses and Elijah. I tell you, man... I have made it. I'm obviously here because Jesus needs my advice. (laughs) I got this, Jesus. I know what we need to do here. We need to build some altars. Are you kidding me? (laughs) 
but I can see myself falling into that. I can see myself being like that, like I got this all figured out. And so here we go now. They're coming down from the mountain in verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until, and this is a key, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Are we starting to get the repetition here that Jesus is trying to get a point across to these guys, whether it was at the end of chapter 8, six days before on the Mount Transfiguration as he's talking about his coming death in Jerusalem, his departure, or as he says it here after that, as they're coming down from the mountain to these three guys, uh, he says to them, don't even mention this to anyone until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So they seize upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. What rising from the dead meant? I think it means he's going to rise from the dead, right? Now think to yourself, if I don't understand what rising from the dead meant, what question should I ask Jesus? Hey, Jesus, what does it mean when you say you're going to rise from the dead? And I think in that moment he would have said, oh, that means I'm going to rise from the dead. (laughs) What question did they ask? They asked him, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Huh? (laughs) I'm missing the point. Just just real quick, review for me, Peter. Who did you just see on the mountain? Moses and Elijah. So who came first? Elijah. All right. What part didn't you understand? (laughs) Oh, what it means that Jesus is going to rise from the dead. That's the part. But they don't ask that question. Baffles me. Just my mind is blown by this. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does does first come and restore all things. And yet... How is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on Elijah. Here's my question, Peter. How is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, 3. The Old Testament prophet said that this was going to happen to the Messiah, that he was going to suffer and that he was going to die. You're so focused on the fulfillment of the kingdom that you're missing this suffering piece. And then he says something really intriguing. I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, setting aside that they literally just saw Elijah on the mountain, there's actually another Elijah that this is pointing to, and that Elijah is a guy by the name of John the Baptist. If you turn to Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus will just directly say that. In 11:14, Matthew 11:14, Jesus says, If you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. So Elijah's job was to restore the people. Elijah's job was to restore all things. John came preaching this repentance, this restoring, this returning. That's what his job was. And then introducing and making way the path of the Lord. And Jesus is saying he is that Elijah, that Elijah that they heard about in Malachi chapter 4, which, by the way, two weeks before Easter, we'll be starting Malachi chapter 1, and we'll finish Malachi chapter 4 the week before Easter when we finish Mark chapter 16 at the resurrection here. So all of it kind of coming together at the same time is kind of fun, kind of cool, I suppose. And then he just kind of moves on because in verse 14, they came back to the disciples, they get to the bottom of the mountain, and all of a sudden there's a crowd, and the disciples that didn't get to come up in the mountain are in the middle of an argument with the scribes. It says in verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. 
Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. So they stop watching the fight. They go see the famous person. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him when He saw him immediately, the spirit threw him into convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It's often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, the boy uh, boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. And when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. So here's the circumstance. He gets down the mountain. There's a crowd of people arguing with the disciples. They're arguing because the disciples were unable to perform this miracle of casting out this demon out of this poor kid. I mean, just imagine, this is this kid's life. This demon would just control him, make him mute, throw him into the ground, into convulsions, has thrown him into the water, has thrown him into fire. And this poor, exasperated father, if you could imagine being the father of that kid, this poor, exasperated father, hears that Jesus is in the area. He goes to find Jesus. Jesus can't be found because he's up on the mountain praying and, you know, being transfigured and whatnot. And in the midst of all of that, the disciples that are left behind, he's like, well, you're his disciples, you heal him. And they're like, Demon, be gone. And the demon's like, <laughs> what? I don't have to listen to you. They can't cast him out. So when Jesus gets down here, he hears this whole story from the Father. The Father says this interesting thing, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, course I can. I'm Jesus. If you can. And then he says, all things are possible to him who believes. And then I think the truest statement said by anyone who's not Jesus ever is right here. The father says back to him, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That to me is the truest thing I've ever read in my life in the scripture that was not Jesus' words. Because I know that's how I feel a lot. Yes, I believe. He's a little help, but yes, I believe. Yes, I believe. Help my unbelief, though. I think there is kind of this balance between what we believe and what we believe to the point to make it happen. I've used this illustration before, but if I believe that a chair is stable, I'm going to sit on it. If I believe a chair is stable, but I refuse to sit on it, I'm not sure I believe the chair is stable. The last time I tried to illustrate this, I did it poorly, so I'm not going to do it again. Because I said, I believe that I can stand on this stool and it'll support me. And I got on the stool and I forgot it swivels and it just started spinning. And I was up here doing one of these things thinking, oh, this was a bad idea. But it held me up and it spun me around. And if I had I believed it would spin me around, I would not have gotten up on that stool. I'll tell you that right now. But your actions follow your belief. I believe these things. I believe they're true. 
but how much do I believe? And there's this recognition that in all of us, even as much as we do believe in all of us, there's, there's a little bit of unbelief as well. Uh, I illustrate it this way as well in my life. I remember uh, one time a young man that was in a wheelchair, had been in a wheelchair his whole life. And I just, in this moment, I'm like, why don't I believe enough to pray for this kid to get out of his wheelchair? And so it's this kind of crazy thing. Church is going on, worship is going on. And I walk up to him and chicken out. And I go like this. I go, just imagine that's the wheelchair. I just walk by and I go, be healed and rise. <laughs> I believe, help my unbelief. Like, how did I get over here? And it was kind of this thing, like, I was afraid somebody would hear me pray for him and he wouldn't be healed. And then now I'm a loser. And how can I be the pastor if I don't have enough belief? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Wouldn't that have been the perfect answer for the disciples? When Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. And I'm going to be raised from the dead three days later. Okay, you said it, Jesus. I believe it. But I don't get it. Help my unbelief. Just help me believe this. So Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. And so he rebukes the unclean spirit. He says, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And then the kid is thrown down on the ground into terrible convulsions. The spirit comes out. The boy's laying there like a corpse. Everybody's freaking out. You killed him. He's dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and raised the boy up. Healed. The crowd is amazed. The disciples are confused. They get back to the house. They go into a house. They're alone now, because why would you ask this question in front of a crowd? Why couldn't I do it? I don't want to draw attention to that right now not in front of the crowd. So they go into the house and they ask, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind can come out, cannot come out by anything but prayer. Add to that, Matthew tells us a little bit more about this conversation, is uh, that Matthew said uh, that, uh, now I have to remember, I'm going to turn to Matthew 17 because I can't remember what Matthew said. Did I write that down? That would have been helpful. For future reference, if you're ever making notes for yourself, write down the things you intend to say. Uh, because of the littleness of your faith, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will be moved and nothing will be impossible to you. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples? You don't have very much faith and you're not even being in prayer. I think he's just identifying them some very simple things about themselves that they couldn't see because they were so caught up in the fact that they were the 12. We're the 12. We're the cool ones. We've got it all figured out. We hang out with Jesus every single day. Demon, come on, bring it on. I'll cast you out. Demon says, you don't even talk to God. How dare you talk to me? You don't even really believe this stuff. You're just caught up in the moment. You're just getting excited because of the, the show that's going on. You're just prideful because of your position. But you don't really believe this stuff. Because if you did believe this stuff, when Jesus said, I'm going to die and be resurrected to life, you would say, yeah, God can do that. They didn't really believe. They didn't really have faith. Now, this is actually... Uh, a very difficult thing, though. I just want to point this out before we hit this last couple of verses here. I just want to point this out. Because this is one of those things that I've struggled with throughout my ministry. One of the things I think we have to remember is that Jesus doesn't heal everyone. And that can be a little bit devastating to comprehend. Particularly if you know the person that Jesus isn't healing. Or if you are the person that Jesus isn't healing. 
that can be particularly devastating. And, and Satan can take this and twist it in your brain and say, you don't have enough faith to be healed. You haven't prayed enough to be healed. You don't deserve to be healed. And, and completely remove from that equation God's sovereignty. But honest to goodness, the scripture tells us sometimes God decides not to heal. And we don't always know why that is, but sometimes that's what he decides. Sometimes he allows us to go through our difficulty because he says in our weakness we become strong. Sometimes that's why. That he uses our difficulty, he uses our pain, he uses our illness to somehow strengthen us and to make us more powerful. I don't know how that works, but sometimes that's what he does. I always think of the pool of Bethsaida. There's all these people there who want to be healed. Jesus healed one guy, just one guy out of all those people that wanted to be healed. Just one guy. Now, you remember the apostle Paul begged three times for the thorn in his flesh to be taken, and Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. So he doesn't heal every time. So, yes, you can look at these circumstances and ask yourself this question. I have faith. Help my faith, right? Yes, you can look at the circumstance and say, am I even in prayer about these things? Certainly those can be corrective. But please don't think we have this genie in a bottle situation where you're now the master and you get to tell Jesus when it's time to heal somebody. He's still God. He's still sovereign. So I say, pray and pray and pray and believe and believe and believe until Jesus heals you or says no. Like he said to the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. But it's his decision. It's his choice. And let me just talk, take this from a logic standpoint, by the way, just, just as a logical thing. If Jesus healed anyone, nobody would die. If Jesus healed everyone, nobody would die. If nobody ever dies, who needs heaven? Because you'll never stand before the judge. That's just a logic thing. That's not theology. That's just my brain going, wait, the math doesn't work out. This is why when you have these, these faith healers that are out there that say they can heal anyone anytime, and then when it doesn't work, they blame the person, right? Because well, obviously that's your fault because you don't have enough faith. I always wonder, like, why don't they just spend all day at like Children's Hospital if they're so good? Like, do me a favor, buddy. Like, why do I have to drive to you? You already know where the sick people are. Go get them. because it's a game to them. It's an absolute game. Not that people don't get healed at those things. Because again, Jesus is sovereign. God will heal who he wants, when he wants, how he wants. So certainly there are people that are legitimately healed through the work of what I would call charlatans of the faith. But they didn't heal anybody. God does. So yes, pray. Yes, have faith. But I would say, add to your faith. Jesus is my beloved son. Listen to him. Because sometimes he doesn't want to heal everybody. In fact, in this case, it's a distraction from what Jesus is actually trying to do. He's trying to teach his disciples what the future holds, that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer and die, and he's going to resurrect from the dead. And how do we know that's what he's trying to do? It says in verse 30, from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he didn't want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. That's what Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand. And the healings, as powerful and as exciting as they are, they're actually a distraction from the ministry Jesus is trying to do. And that's why he keeps telling people over and over, tell nobody that I healed you. Because he's not looking for a crowd. That's not what his game is. That's not what he's looking for. He doesn't want all of that extra response. 
And that's why when he began to heal this kid, he first steps away, even though the crowd then sees it all happening and they follow him again. So there's just kind of this continual theme. He keeps telling people, stop telling people that I'm healing you. My ministry is not healing. His ministry is salvation. And it's going to be accomplished through his death and through his resurrection. So he again, he takes the guys away. He's like, come on, there's a crowd everywhere we go. Let's see if we can get a little bit of peace. And now he goes back through Galilee. And his whole deal there in verse 31, he's teaching his disciples, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. That's pretty obvious. They will kill him. And when he has been killed, there's no question, he will be killed. And when that happens, start a clock because three days later, Jesus will rise again. And God the Father said, this is my son, listen to him. And his disciples said, they did not understand this statement. You remember at the beginning where I said there's nothing more frustrating to clearly explain something and not be understood? I could not imagine what Jesus is feeling in this moment. I just can't even imagine because this is so massively important what he's trying to tell them, what he's trying to teach them, what he's explaining to them. Uh, If by my count, five times since chapter 8, verse 31, in one way or another, he has brought about this understanding that he's going to die and resurrect from the dead. Five times. And it's not like he altered it and said it weirdly. He said it very clearly. I'm going to die Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And the disciples are just like, I don't get it. Okay, if you don't get it, what should you do? Ask a question. And then it ends. And they were afraid to ask him. Didn't mind asking him about your silly Elijah question. Didn't mind asking him, why couldn't we cast out this demon? But the thing he has said five times that you still don't get, and then I go, oh, wait a second. How many times in my own pride have I just nodded my head like I understood something? Uh Uh-huh. So as not to share with the world my idiocy. (laughs) So that it's not clear to everyone that I am the only person in the room that doesn't get this. I can promise you, I do it over and over and over again. See, I I want to be like, man, I get what Jesus is feeling. Because then I get to feel like Jesus. Woohoo! But the truth be told, there are things that Jesus says in his scriptures over and over and over again. That I think we as Christians sometimes are like, yeah, I don't really get that. I'll come back to that one later. Here's what I do know. You know who's afraid to ask? I think it's the person who has little faith. That's the person who's afraid to ask the hard questions. Have you ever run across that in your life? There have been doctrinal things that I've discovered in Scripture that I just didn't like. And I was afraid if I started tugging on that string too hard, all of my faith would unravel. And so I just don't ask. I just, I'm afraid if I start to pursue this question that I'll hear the answer and it won't make sense to me. If it doesn't make sense to me, then obviously all this isn't true. And then I have to just abandon my faith. Like, have you ever, maybe I'm the only one, I'm getting stares like, hmm? Nope, that's just you, Sean. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But I I think that's a legitimate thing that believers legitimately feel, that they see things that they can't quite understand in Scripture. And instead of just saying, this is God's Son, I'm going to listen to Him. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. I can't defend it. I can't argue it. I can't debate it. But I believe it. Lord, help my unbelief. And when you trust fully in God, 
you go ahead and you start to tug on that string. That's what mature people of faith do. I think we see this most with our kids. Sometimes our kids will ask us questions, and it just sounds really hard. And we just tell them, you don't need to know that to be a Christian. And then they go to school, and somebody at school asks them that question. And they realize they can't answer it. And their faith is shaken. The person who's afraid is likely the person who doesn't have, afraid to ask, is likely the person that doesn't have that much faith. Now these same disciples, after the resurrection, after Jesus is killed and then three days later is resurrected, all of that changes. Because what they were hearing but hadn't seen is about to become real. And when it becomes real, that changes everything. Going up to it, you're not going to go and die and resurrect Jesus. I'm Peter. I'm one of your chosen three. I'm telling you, it's not going to happen. After it, Peter surrendered his whole life to it. That's powerful. The change that happens there in their hearts and their lives. So maybe the, the five times that Jesus had to say this to them wasn't so much about them getting it now, but it was about them getting it after the resurrection, after it happened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for every opportunity we get to be in your word. And sometimes we come across passages like this where we're looking uh, for personal application, where we're so concerned about how we can uh, maybe live differently or live more rightly, Lord. But I believe it's just so powerful to just get to the heart of what you were trying to teach. Oh, Father, that you through rep repetition, uh, through powerful demonstration, by the power of God, you are glorified. But over and over, getting back to this point, this key idea, this key thought, that you would suffer and die and that you would raise from the dead. And Lord, it's that one thing that makes you so different from every other religion, from every other so-called little g God. And Lord, it's the reason that we worship you. It's the reason that we celebrate you. Oh, Father, this morning I would pray that that reminder of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, would be encouraging to us who believe and would be transforming to those who do not yet believe. And Lord, we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close in worship.